Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time. Thank you for your, your mercy and your grace, for your power, for your majesty. You are the one who is seated far, far above when, when, um, when your word describes the earth as your footstool. That gives a little bit of perspective. So we praise you for that. Thank you for uh, healing Jim, giving him the ability to play. Thank you for sending so many of our, 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 our church to camp. We pray, for, we pray for conversions, God, that you would lift, um, lift the, the, the chains of sin and lift the blinders of sin from those in our, in our youth group that need that, from other churches that need that. God, save their souls and draw them to yourself. We pray for great fruit from that, for sanctification for those who are believers in that camp. God, give health and strength to, to particularly the leaders as they pour themselves into uh, the, the students. Bless that with, with great effect, we pray. We ask the Lord that your spirit would be with us now <clears throat> to give us understanding, to give us clarity, and to give us uh, conviction and encouragement as we need it from your word uh, this morning. Conform us to the image of your son. Conform our minds to the truths of your word that we might live according to them. That's true life right there, Father. Thank you for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So life and its happenings bring about many questions. Often those questions challenge the way that life seems to work. We've all had them. You go through something and you say, well, why did this happen? Why was this the result? How come so-and-so decided to do this? Why does it work this way? And various circumstances bring those things about. Sometimes, as we're discovering, theological assertions bring those questions about. Romans 8, Romans 9, predestination, the sovereignty of God. How does God's sovereignty work? Is it fair that he chooses one person? Those questions arise. As many of us see even in Jerry Bridges' book that we're, that we're studying in the, in the care groups, Trusting God, questions arise like, how, how is God good when there is so much evil in the world? Is God really sovereign over those hardships that occur in my life? Life happens and questions arise. Those theological questions arise. Personal circumstances also easily draw out those questions. For many of us, it's questions like these. How, how come I didn't get that promotion? Why, why won't my house sell at the time when I need it? How come I don't seem to get the recognition at work that I deserve? Why are things not going according to my plan, my five-year plan, my 10-year plan? Why can't I beat this ailment, this issue, I have a good friend whose five-year-old niece has been battling a, a rare form of leukemia for three years, so since, since she was two. This little girl's mom writes about her experience on a blog, and she's had to live separate from her husband and her other daughter for the majority of those three years. She's pretty much lived in kind of a hospital room. She's um, had to watch her daughter go through all the accompanying medical difficulties, the chemo, the shots the blood transfusions, the, the marrow transfusions, all of this, that the ups and downs of enduring that type of a thing as a mom watching your three- to, to five-year-old go through that. It's a grueling roller coaster of medical highs and lows, and, and at this point, it doesn't seem like there's too much left to do. And that causes questions. It causes one to question life, sometimes even question God. Why does he allow that? Does this little girl deserve this? To all these questions, I wish there was a, a prepackaged answer, some sort of pill of truism that if you take it, you'll wake up in the morning and, and everything will make sense and, and you won't have any problems, you won't have any questions, everything will, will feel better. It'll alleviate all the difficulties but there isn't. There is no pat answer like that. There's no gift-wrapped answer that you untie, open it up, and bam, everything makes sense. There's no answer, but there is perspective. 
There is understanding that provides a beacon of light when you're in those shadows of darkness. There is a guide wire to hold on to when you're in that thick black of difficulty. And it is this perspective that Paul will discuss and will unfold for us later in Romans as, we, as he, he addresses some of those theological assertions that causes questions. It is this per- perception that my friend's sister-in-law is, is clinging to, the mother of this little girl. She's clinging to it in her trials. It is this understanding that Job gained in the midst of his scenarios. See, Job had seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and many, many servants. And for reasons unknown to him, and really even reasons unknown to us, we see the dialogue, but the reason, well, we don't really know the reason. For reasons unknown to Job, all of that is taken away from him. His children are slain, his animals stolen, his slaves killed, and even his own body then is ravaged by a disease such that he has to take broken pieces of pottery and scrape pieces of his flesh off just to try to alleviate some of the discomfort. And Job responds initially with statements of faith, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He also says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Those are great. Inspiring. But then a dialogue occurs between Job and his three friends, and we find Job's responses taking more of that questioning approach. I wish I had never been born. Cursed be the day of my birth, he says. Why is this happening to me? He says, I've tried to live righteously. I don't get it. Is God fair in this? He asks, how, how can God deal with me this way when the wicked don't seem to suffer at all? He even says, God, after making me, why would you destroy me like this? And finally, in chapter 31, he cries out in an agonizing challenge. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. He feels like like God doesn't even hear him. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary, God, has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder. If God would only answer him, Job would be happy to bear this, this indictment. He says, I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. See, Job is in pain. And Job has questions. We all encounter pain. And we all have questions. And God doesn't give Job an answer. He doesn't give him a formula that says, Job, here you go. Drink this tonic and it'll be all good. He doesn't give an answer, but God does give Job perspective. And this perspective allows Job to learn two lessons that I think it would be very edifying and beneficial for all of us to hear and to heed as well. The first lesson being this. Creation makes it clear that we are not on a level playing field with God. Creation makes it clear we are not on a level playing field with God. Look in Job chapter 38. God begins this lesson. After all that dialogue that I just very, very, very briefly summarized, after all that dialogue in chapter 38, God begins to teach Job perspective with the first lesson being that creation should teach Job and all of us as well that we are not on a level playing field with God. God starts this lesson by getting Job's attention in verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job, because remember how Job said, oh, if there was someone to hear me, if only God would answer me. So God 
answers him. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. God is not upset necessarily with Job's attitude. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He says, the issue here is you're speaking, Job, out of ignorance. You're speaking out of smallness of perspective, out of just a, a, a slice of awareness and knowledge of what really is going on. And so then he says, now, go ahead, wrap your robe around you, tighten your belt, get ready, because I'm going to instruct you. I will ask you, and then you instruct me, which is God's way, and as we find in the Gospels, even Jesus' often way of, uh, of instruction. So then God proceeds to teach that first lesson by drawing Job's attention toward his power over creation. Firstly, over his macrocosmic power, his global and universal power, and then later on, his microcosmic power. So his macro power starts here in chapter 38, verse 4. This is God asking him, and in a subtle way, instructing Job that creation should teach Job that there, there is no equality here. Job and God are... Us and God are not on a level playing field. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He goes all the way back to creation. I guess I should give you a, a bit of a preface. We're going to hit like four chapters right now. So this is not going to be in-depth. There are, there are some issues with the Hebrew. There are some different translations, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to do that. We're going to get the whole argument here. Okay, so, so if, I, if you have questions about things and I, and I skip them, I apologize, but we have limited time and we're going to cover a lot of material. So God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I created this ground that you're standing on? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements? Since you know. A little poke there. Or, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? The, this picture God is painting of, of building an edifice. God is the master architect, the master builder, and Job was not there. And God reminds him of that. On what were its bases sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The angels were there watching and marveling. Job was not. Verse 8, God talks about the sea. Or, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth? It went out from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. See, these are things that we see, Job may have been able to see. Man, the ocean doesn't go past this point. When that, when that water came, there were confinements established, and we might observe those things, but we don't control them. Job might see those things, but he doesn't control them. God set those parameters God said, all right, ocean, this is where you can go. This is where you shall stop. And he wants Job to feel that. I think he wants us to feel that too. Now, granted, we live in Kansas, so it's a little harder to uh, get the whole sense of that. But it's a powerful image if you've been to the coast to see the vastness of the sea and to know that if those boundaries gave... If those confinements let go, there is nothing man could do to stop that onslaught. We see that on a, on a very small scale, not to belittle it, but on a small scale when, when tsunamis hit, the power of the ocean, when God says, go. Then he looks at um, light, light and its, its effect 
He says, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? These are the effects of, of light. You've been in a plane as, as, as you've kind of chased the sunrise and that line between the, the darkness and the light as the light slowly reaches out and takes hold of the ends of the earth and, and peels back everything that's been going on in darkness. It shakes the wicked out of it. It has changed. The earth is changed like clay under the seal. All those formations, all, all, all the, the topography of the earth stands forth like a garment. You can actually see the definition from the wicked, their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm of rebellion is broken. God says, Job, do you, do you have anything to do with that? Then he looks into the chasms of unsearchable depths. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep. God takes Job to the deepest physical part that he can point him to and says, that ocean, go to the deepest part and go to the depths of that. Have you been there? By implication, I have. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 139 recognizes that, right? Where can I go from your spirit if I were to flee to the deepest parts of the sea? Yeah, God is still there. God has been there. And God asked Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? So we've got physical depth. How about this spiritual depth? Have you ever encountered or do you have any awareness of the depth of death? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. So keep in mind what God is responding to here. Seven sons, three daughters, thousands of animals, many slaves, property, Job's physical health, taken away for an unknown reason. Job accepts it, but then in the pain, challenges it, questions it, says, I don't get this. This isn't fair. I don't understand how this works. And this is the perspective that God is teaching him. Have you done this? Were you there when this happened? He's showing his macrocosmic power, his great power over all things. In verse 19, he talks about the workings of light and darkness. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Again, it's something we observe every day. The sun rises, the sun sets. And God is, God is illustrating, and he's showing Job that you think this just happens. I actually, I, I, I lead the light to its bed, and I lead the darkness out. He's personifying these things, saying, I'm in control of them. You see them. You don't know anything about them. You don't have any power over these things. But I, I know where light dwells. I take it to a territory. I take darkness back to its home. And then he looks at weather in verse 22. He says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? Where, where is the way that the light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood? or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout. See, God, God even says, look, where there are no men, where men wouldn't care, I do stuff. I bring rain. I bring the flood. I bring the water to bring life, to bring vegetation. Not that anybody is, is there to appreciate it or, or to care about it, but I do it. You don't. I do. 
28. Has the rain a father? Or, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice? He's saying there is a source for all this weather that we so often just flippantly say, ah, here comes the rain. Oh, look, look, look at that dew. The dew popped up again. But he's saying, God is saying that these things have a source, and that source is not Job. That source is God himself. From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Job, can you bring about such thickness of ice on any sort of body of water that, that the depths are imprisoned? God then turns from weather to the constellations, to the, to the, the universe afar. He says in verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? He's saying, do you know? You might observe and we observe, hey, these stars move this way. This constellation always seems to go in such and such a way. And that's, that's an ordinance and that's a rule. But we haven't fixed it. Job did not, does not lead those constellations along their path. Job did not establish it. And while we might know much about it from observation, we have no power over it. We have no say in it. We have nothing to do with it actually doing what it does In verse 34, then he looks back again at weather. He says, can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? God challenges Job and, and his control with his words. See, God spoke and things happen. God speaks and things happen. We speak I mean, th think of the farmers in a drought. How much do they speak? Come on, rain. Let's go. We need you now. No thunderbolt or thunderclap or lightning bolt comes and responds and says, hey, here we are. We'll make a storm for you. It just doesn't work. Job can't. God can. It talks about the source of wisdom in 36. Huh. We so often think wisdom is sourced in ourselves, but, but listen to God. He says, who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can, who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? Again, not Job. God. Seven sons, three daughters, thousands of animals, all his property, his physical health is taken from him. Job cries out in pain and challenge, saying, this doesn't make sense. This shouldn't be. Why? And God says, look at this. Look at me. Look at who I am, what I've done. Are you that? Do you have this kind of macrocosmic power? And then he goes on. He looks then at his microcosmic power. He's looked at all these systems, all these great, vast organizations of, of, of things that we can observe but have no control over, and then he brings it even, even closer. In verse 39, he looks at provision for animals, he says, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait for their lair? Who, who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Not Job. He looks at the, 
the supervision of new life in chapter 39. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? You might, Job might have observed one deer give birth, but how about all the deer? Do you know the time when they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young, they get rid of their labor pains, their offspring become strong, they grow up in the open field, they leave and do not return to them. Animals, 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 born, grow up, become a mature animal, leave the home, have more baby animals. The, the, the cycle of life is what God is talking about. Job, what do you have to do with that? How much do you know about that? How much power do you have over that? And then he looks at a donkey. He, he brings out some very specific animals and how they operate. And he's basically asking Job, did you make these the way that they are? He says, who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I gave the wilderness for a home in the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver. He does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. This donkey, this, this wild animal that just loves to roam and is so free. Job, you didn't make it. How about, the, how about the ox, Job, in verse 9? Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? He says, Job, this animal is amazing. You, you, don't, you don't have much to do with that. I made this animal. I made it with its power and its capacity and its independence. And then what I find to be the most fun one, starting in verse 13, it looks at the ostrich. It says, the ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love for she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust. That verse 13 there, the ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love. That's, that's, that's a brutal part of Hebrew language that uh, there's, there's lots of argument over that. Some of the other translations have a more clear translation where it actually says the ostrich's wings flap joyously. So the ostrich is sitting there going like this, but then the next verse, many of the translators would say, but are they the wings of the stork? So saying that ostrich flaps its wings and has a good time flapping its wings, but it does not get off the ground. It does not fly like a stork. And then verse 14, what mother does this? She abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned. Why? Why is this bird so foolish? Why does it sit there flapping its wings to no effect? Why does it leave its eggs where anything can just crush it or steal it or eat it? Verse 17, because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, though, when she gets up to run, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Boom! That ostrich can run. So God says, look at this. Look at this bird. This crazy weird, ineffective, foolish, very quick bird. Job, I made that. Speaking of the horse, he says, do you give the horse its might or do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. And it does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground, and he, he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he scents the battle from afar, and the thunder of the captains in the war cry. This horse, this amazing horse, you can observe it. You can even ride it. You didn't make it like it is. You did not give it all those attributes. Give it all those characteristics. How about the hawk? Verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? 
On the cliff he dwells and lodges, upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food, his eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. The ways of the hawk. God says, look at the hawk, where he lives, what he eats, all that he does. Job, look at him. Is it by your understanding that the hawk is that way? God's conclusion then, after driving home the point of his macrocosmic power and his microcosmic power, is to challenge Job to see if he would still rebuke God for what has happened. He says in chapter 40, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder, Job, contend with the Almighty, God? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job, I've given you a little bit of knowledge. I've given you a little bit of perspective on who I am. Are you going to reprove me now? And then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth once I have spoken in his past dialogues, and I will not answer even twice in his past dialogues. And I will add nothing more. Job's response indicates that he's learned a lesson, uh, but not quite everything he's learned to, needed to learn yet because there's silence now. I will not reprove the Almighty, but there's no contrition over his past reproof. There's no retraction of his prior challenges. But he's learned. He's learned a lesson. He's learned that, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? Job has learned that he is not on a level playing field with God. Job cannot approach God as an equal and say, things ought to be. He cannot come before God and say, I deserve he cannot come before God and say, this shouldn't be. He cannot come before God and say those things. And neither can we. See, creation should be our ever-present reminder that God is all-powerful. And we, this is not good for our egos, but we are insignificant and unable to challenge this is convicting to my own heart because of so much of what I just take for granted. But when we feel the wind blow, we should marvel. We feel it. We, we don't control it. We don't cause it. When the storms come, we should praise God. When the stars appear, we should be humbled. When the animals demonstrate their uniquenesses, we should be amazed. Not just amazed at the animal, but at the hand, God's hand who fashioned, who created them, that displays his awesomeness, his glory, his beauty, his wisdom, and his understanding. So let those things remind us of the right perspective as who God is and who we are. No matter our circumstances, that perspective gives insight. Remember my friend's niece, the mom of that five-year-old five little girl fighting leukemia? This mom gives us an illustration of what this looks like. Listen to her words as she's getting, as she writes. I circle my computer, giving it wide berth. It sits silent in my bag, but demands that I attend to this blog, this accounting of my daughter's flesh, of my heart, of this ragged road I trudge, my feet tripping over stones, fatigue weighing down my legs, pressing my face flat. She's not whitewashing anything. Sometimes I want to yell back, what have I to say? What? 
For when I sit to write, really I am calling out again, not just at night as tears slip hot down my cheeks, not just during the day as I plead for patience, for wisdom, for grace with my daughter as I battle her over food, over taking meds. I am calling out to the Lord, what do you have to say, O oh God? What answer do you give to my weeping, my raging, my flat silence, the groaning of my spirit, the trembling of self, exhausted? I need more, Lord. I need new. And sometimes it just seems like silence, and I yell all the more, and I cry out, do you hear me? And I question if he's really there. And I consider whether or not all my beliefs amount to nothing more than wild speech and desperate, absurd hoping. This query ever turns to smile in the midst of my tears. Look at the beetle in all its wild extravagance of color, pattern, and fanciful design. Does not the beetle reflect in technicolor the glory of the Lord? The feather, the leaf, the shell, the flower, the seed, oh, do they not all answer back with endless hallelujah that the Lord is God? And so I yield I bow, no, I fall flat before him again. This woman whose five-year-old girl has been struggling for three years and is on the verge of dying says, I tell him, I worship you. I really do fall down in adoration of you because your beauty, it just stops me in my tracks it stuns me. It shuts my mouth. And I cry because you are too much, too gorgeous, too resplendent. So she demonstrates the perspective that there is a vast differential of greatness between God and her. Job also learned that lesson. But it wasn't the full lesson. The perspective of God's greatness and his own insignificance caused him to withhold further rebuke, but not to recant, as it were. He says, once I've spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing more. So God moves in to teach Job a second lesson. The second one is this, perhaps even more important. Acceptance is found by understanding God, not the circumstances. Job then challenges, or God then challenges Job again in verse 6, chapter 40. He says, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, now... Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Here we go again. And he makes contrasts. First, he contrasts his discernment with Job's. He says, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Judgment not in the sense of I, I condemn you to be punished, but judgment in the sense of I, it is my judgment that this is best for it to happen. It is my decision, my discernment. Job, will you contradict that? And then his power in verse 9, do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? And his character, ah, Job, adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. God can do that. Job cannot. God can bestow people with that, but only God can clothe himself with that. How about his authority? Job, he says, pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Job, if you have that kind of authority, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. God contrasts his discernment. He contrasts his power. He contrasts his character. He contrasts his authority. He says, Job, look at me. God has proven that he can do marvelous things, that he has unparalleled power over creation. But now he provokes Job to not look at what he does, but to look at who he is. God is wise and discerning. God is powerful and mighty. God is preeminent and majestic. He is authoritative and wrathful. And if Job is like God in these things, then Job can argue with God. But obviously the answer is Job is not like God 
in those things. So God then uses two amazing creatures of his own making to illustrate the point, behemoth and leviathan. The description of these two creatures is astounding. They are truly awe-inspiring animals that dwarf men, that humble men, that cause men to flee in fear. And we don't have time to look through those passages, but God's main point in discussing these animals can be found in chapter 41, 10 to 11. He says, no, no one is fierce. He's talking about Leviathan. No one is fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who's going to walk up and smack Leviathan in the nose and say, hey, wake up? No one. So who is then is he that can stand before me? God. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God says, no man is brash with Leviathan or behemoth. So why would you be brash and challenging with the one who made Leviathan and behemoth? God says, look, if, you, if men like you can't even approach these beasts because you fear them, how much more should you fear and reverence me because I am the one who made them? And then after this point is driven home that understanding and appreciating God's character gives acceptance. Job then not only refuses to add to his rebuke, but he's learned his lesson well. He retracts and he repents of his earlier challenge. Chapter 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He acknowledges God's absolute power, absolute prerogative, absolute preeminence, absolute reign. He refers back to God's question, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He then says, I realize, therefore I have declared that which I did not know. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He refers back to God's previous statement again. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. Job says in verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. A little bit of a distant understanding. A little bit of a understanding by proxy. But now, but now my eye sees you. God has exploded into Job's world with an understanding of who he is. And Job's response is that, therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 other animals, seven sons, three daughters, multitude of slaves, his own health wiped out, all gone. And Job says, I, I repent for challenging you because now I see you for who you are. We can learn these same lessons. We can look at creation and recognize the difference between God and us, and we should. It should be a daily reminder. And we can also admire his character, know more of his attributes, and recognize our inequality with God. And as a result, if we learn these two lessons... Creation teaches us that there's a, there's a, we are on a very different playing field than the Lord. And that acceptance comes from knowing God and understanding God, not trying to understand our circumstances. Then we can endure anything that comes our way without challenging God, simply because we know who he is and we know who we are. But see, we, we, are, we are even more blessed than Job because we can, we can know God so, so intimately. You want to know about God's character? Right here. We also know through the Word, through the work of the Spirit, a risen and personal Savior. God is not only exalted and mighty, but for our awareness of who God is, he is not only supreme and holy and above rebuke, but he is personal, he is sacrificial, and he is loving. 
He's demonstrated that through Jesus. God sent his beloved son to die in our place so that the greatest struggle and difficulty we could ever come against, punishment in eternity, in hell, for our sins, that greatest struggle and difficulty can be lifted from us through the death of Christ on the cross. That demonstration of character not only provides salvation, but it provides perspective. No matter the pain, no matter the hardship, no matter the struggle, no matter the darkness, when when you struggle to trust, when you struggle to believe, when you struggle with challenges and doubt, don't look to your circumstances for answers. Look to God. And most specifically, look to Jesus, your Savior, and his work on the cross. If you don't know Jesus, he's the only one who you'll find answers in. He's the only one who will be able to provide that perspective. And so I I, I urge you to turn to him and repent of your sins now so that you can know God personally and be forgiven but you look to God for perspective about his greatness, his power, his sovereignty, and his love, his tenderness, and his compassion. And you contrast those truths with our weakness, our foolishness, our inabilities, and our lack of discernment, and you cling to that perspective. You cling to those bedrock truths that never change. Sometimes you might only be able to have a hand around that rope, but that rope will never break. That rope will never fail, no matter the darkness, no matter the storm. But circumstances will not provide answer. God and who he is does. And then you can endure all things that come your way. I came across a song uh, the other day that was, was, was it's, it's, it's new, uh, I mean, it was a perfect capstone to this, so I want to uh, play it, and you guys are a great learning, song-learning church, so you'll hear one verse and, and then join me in singing. It's a response uh, of these things. It speaks of the Lord's sovereignty, His creative power, His kindness and salvation, and then, and then has a great uh, response that I, I, would, I would pray is our heart's response, so I encourage you to stand and as soon as you as soon as you can join me our sovereign god by his own word sustains the world and reigns as Lord. No angel, demon, sinful man can change his course, restrain his hand. O sovereign God, we praise your power, your wisdom, goodness we adore. We bow our hearts before your throne. Help us, O Lord. To trust you more, help us, O oh Lord, to trust you more. Oh, in the fullness of the time had come, God sent his own beloved Son to keep God's law living place to bear our sin, guilt, and disgrace. Dead in our sin, estranged from God, we fled as rebels from His love. In sovereign grace, He made us sons and saved us from the wrath to come, and saved us from the wrath to come. Planned our days 
laid out our course, ordained our ways. The moments of our lives you weaves, so all the glory he receives. To those he loved before all time, to all he called in grace renewed. He cannot lie, his word is true, he makes all things to work for good. All things to work for good. He has written history's final page. His son's return will end the stage. that your prayer this week, and I believe if you have any questions uh, about the, the message, the church, or anything like that, um, we have plenty of people who are willing to answer those questions, Bob and Kathy, myself, Mike and Christy, anybody next to you, so have a great morning, you're dismissed, and we'll be back in 15 minutes for Sunday school.